the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, for this broadcast, our focus is on Richard Dick Creswell, DFC, 1920 to 2006. Now, Dick was a pilot in the Royal Australian Air Force. He held command of number 77 fighter squadron during World War II and again during the Korean War. He was credited with being the first RAAF pilot to shoot down enemy aircraft at night over Australian soil. The only man to serve as commanding officer of an RAAF squadron on three occasions during wartime. The first officer to lead a jet-equipped Australian squadron into combat. His performance in the Korean War earned him both the Commonwealth and the United States Distinguished Flying Crosses. Dick joined the RAAF at Point Cook in July of 1938. By 1942, he was promoted to squadron leader and commanded the newly formed 77 Squadron at Pierce, Western Australia. The squadron was flying P-40 Kitty Hawks. At 21, he was younger than most of his personnel. Initially, he was responsible for the air defence of Perth. 77 Squadron transferred to Bachelor Airfield near Darwin in August of that year, becoming the first RAAF fighter unit to be stationed in the northwestern area. 77 Squadron then moved to another of Darwin's satellite airfields at Livingston. Dick led the squadron in the defense of Darwin against Japanese raiders and claimed the first aerial victory just after 5 a.m. on the 23rd of November 1942 when he destroyed a Mitsubishi Betty bomber. It was the first kill for an Australian squadron over the mainland and the first night victory over land. In February 1943, 77 Squadron was transferred to Milne Bay in New Guinea. The Japanese attacked Milne Bay on the 14th of April and Dick claimed one of four bombers credited to 77 Squadron. The next month, 77 Squadron began island hopping, firstly to Goodenough Island. He was wing leader of 81 fighter wing in New Guinea from May of 1944 to March 1945, simultaneously commanding number 77 squadron for a second time between September and December 1944. During this command, the wing flew 1,125 sorties against Japanese buildings, stores and transport. The late Ken Wilkinson of World War II aircrew recalled his first encounter with Dick Creswell this way. We were told that Wing Commander Creswell, the CO, wanted us to report to him in his tent. He was sitting in a director-style chair, dressed in non-regulation clothing and black high boots, not flying boots. He said, you've joined the best fighter squadron in the RAAF. You've received the best training possible in a wartime situation 
and we've recently been equipped with the latest model Kitty Hawk P-40 N-25 and N-30 aircraft. So, if any of you dare prang one of them, back home to your mothers, you will go. Well, after World War II, 77 Squadron moved to Japan as part of the British Commonwealth Occupation Force and were still there on the declaration of hostilities between North and South Korea. After the death of the CO of 77 Squadron, Lou Spence, on the 9th of September 1950, Dick was sent to replace him and became the squadron's longest serving commanding officer in the Korean War and commander of 77 Squadron in combat for the third time. He oversaw its conversion from P-51 Mustangs to Gloucester Meteors, becoming the first RAAF commander of a jet squadron in war. As well as Meteors, Dick flew F-80 Shooting Star and F-86 Sabre jets in combat while on attachment to the United States Air Force in Korea. He handed over command of number 77 squadron for the last time in August 1951, but flew six more missions as a Meteor pilot in 1953. Well, Dick resigned from the RAAF in December 1956 and was discharged on the 30th of April 1957, so ending the service career of one of Australia's finest. Dick Creswell holds a very special place in the RAAF historical record. In 2006, he was the guest speaker at an aviation club lunch. He gives a very modest account of his exploits in the Air Force containing humour, drama and frankness. Dick opens by taking us back to 1938 and his memory of the Fokker Demon and how students taught him to fly. Well, thank you for having me here because it's quite an event for me to sort of go back in history and talk about some of the silly things I did. Now, way back in uh, the 1938, I joined the Air Force, did my training at Point Cook. On air- aircraft, you probably don't remember, a Gypsy Moth, Avro Cadet, and a Wapiti, a big biplane built by Westlands. And all ours came from the uh, northwest frontier. Anyway, from Point Cook up to uh, Three Squadron, the only Army Corps squadron we had, based at Richmond. That was quite a lovely squadron, really. It flew the famous Hawker Demon, the fighter of the year. The only memorable thing I did about flying demons at, at uh, Richmond was flying down to Fairburn to pick up um, quail. We shot quail with our sh- shotguns we carried with us and mushrooms, which we took back for a very good feed at Richmond that night. But the demon was a nice aircraft, comfortable, built by a famous organisation called Hawkers. Anyway, from Richmond, I had hoped I'd go to the Middle East. Quite a few of the guys were going, but half the squadron was cut down to being instructors and never instructors. So I suppose to back to Point Cook to fly, uh, of all things, DH-86Bs, which were four-engine aircraft owned by Qantas. We took two over to train pilots to f- take the Middle East as hospital aircraft. And they were quite an aircraft. Big biplane. Anyway, from Point Cook, they said, well, Creswell, you better be a instructor. So back to, up to CFS, which was at Camden, outside Sydney, Central Flying School. So train as, as instructor on Anson's and Wirraways. I finished up at Wagga, which was then called Two Service Flying Training School. Arrived there in late June, July, early July, 40. Our CEO was a chap called Sherger, which I never heard of, but he had a very good reputation. 
But he was a wing commander, he was OC, OC of, the, of the base. So he said, well, you're going to ITS, International Training School, and you'll be instructor there. Well, I got to the flight commander, he was a bloke called Orman, uh, he came from uh, civil aviation. He said, well, I'm sorry, Dick, you've got 13 students. I said, what? I've only got 350 hours myself. I don't even know how to fly properly. Anyway, for 13 students, and they're all nice blokes, so we got them there together now and again, and those students taught me to fly right through the 19 months I had at uh, Wagga, because I knew nothing about flying, really, until um, exposed to some of the daredevil and mistakes that they could make quite easily in the front cockpit of a, a, of a Wurraway. So I had 19 months there, and I enjoyed it very much indeed. Dick explains here how the future Air Chief Marshal Fred Sherger told him he had a number of errors. recounts the story of a future Prime Minister, John Gorton. I made a lot of uh, mistakes at Wagga. In fact, Sherg said, you've got a few errors in your life here. You flew up the main street of Wagga one night at seven minutes past 11, he told me, and he and his wife are coming out of the theatre. He said, well, for that, you're not getting a flight lieutenant, which was coming through. Anyway, he later gave it to me, also maybe PMC of the mess, and said I was cipher officer, I was in charge of all night flying and all armour training. I said, well, thanks very much, sir. So that 19 months at Wagga really taught me to fly. It taught me a lot about people, ground crew and air crew, and how they operated and how they thought. Whilst there, two of my pilots were um, people you know. One was Clive Corwell, two of my students. One was Clive Corwell, one was John Gordon. Oh, also, one day he said, got your new job. I said, what's that, sir? He said, O.C. Waff. I said, what the hell are they? <laughs> he said, they're women. I said, ooh. <laughs> and uh, they described to me what they were. What had happened, they posted about 20 WAF into Wagga with no OC or no um, commander, no NCO or anything else. He said, oh, you won't be doing anything, Chris. Well, you're just uh, a name uh, we need to put in charge of the WAFs. But my wife will be looking after them, I think. I said, thank you, I said. So he also said, a bit, little bit more about flying. I'll make you the test pilot for aircraft that came out of the maintenance depot. I said, okay. Anyway, from Wagga, very early February 1942, he said, you're posted to Williamtown and you're going to be a liaison officer and an instructor for a bunch of Americans coming out to Australia. That will be the 49th fighter group of three squadrons, 7th, 8th and 9th. They're called the pursuit squadrons in those days. And uh, they're going on to Darwin later on, but you'll be flying a kitty hawk. I said, what's that? He said, oh, it's a very nice fighter aircraft, brand new one. I got myself airborne the Kitty Hawk, which I liked. I thought it was a hell of a nice aircraft. And uh, trained about five or six Australian pilots to fly the thing later on. Those kids went to uh, 75, uh, 76 Squadron. Anyway, from there, in uh, early March, passed to a brand new Australian squadron called 77, which was in Pierce, West Australia, as senior pilot. Got there around about um, late March. The pilots mm. came from... Singapore, Malaysia, uh, they escaped by ship and aircraft. The ground crew came from all walks of life. There were some straight from the street. Some of our ground crew never had uniforms when they came into the squadron. But they were from maintenance duties, such as garages, industry. Anyway, cut so short, we formed a very good squadron. I had some very senior, very reliable ground crew who knew their job, fitted in very well uh, with, the, with the squadron, but luckily, most of my senior pilots were guys up to 10 years older than me. I was only 21 when I formed that squadron. And um, one was John Gorton, who was 10 years older than me anyway. And he had flown hurricanes 
in T32 squadron, he forced land on an airfield outside Singapore, turned over and smashed his face in. And he escaped by a ship. The ship was torpedoed about 12 hours out of, out of Singapore, and he finished up on a raft. And the Australian ship, the destroyer, saw these guys on this bloody raft, picked them up and took them to Perth. Also, another guy there was black called Tom Watson, who came out of Singapore, who came out of Java. He'd been flying a hurricane and strafed a few Japs, and they shot back, and he, they got him, and he pranked. Finished up in the hospital, and the local RAF uh, officer there said, we better get you to Australia, because you'll be not being looked after by the Japs. So he got to Australia, he's still injured. This Tom Watson was Royal Canadian Air Force, attached to the RAF, and, and then attached to the RAF, and still paid by all three countries as a, as a pilot officer. So guess who had all the money for the parties? But Tom and I became great friends over the years, and he died a few years ago in, in Canada. A very much like man. When we formed the squadron in Perth, in Pierce, we were told to move out, because Pierce was supposed to be a target for the Japanese. So I took over an airfield uh, not far from Pierce. I also took over Dunreath Golf Course, some very nice houses, and uh, one or two garages close by. The air commander, he said, Creswell, I'll give you a wing commander, a legal bloke, and you want to wander around and take what you want to form a brand new airfield and accommodation for your troops and your officers and your aircrew. That's how we took over Perth, uh, Dunreath. Dunreath now is, of course, the Western Australia major airport, but um, God, the authority they gave me, the brand new squad leader, just out of diapers, do all these things to get a squad going. Here Dick explains his move to Darwin and was told to buy everything he could. From Perth, we got the squadron going. We went to Darwin in August 42. But before going there, the AOC said, you better nick up to Darwin, Cresswell, and um, talk to a black called Bladen, who was in a Commodore, in charge of the northwestern area, and see what they've got up there to look after you. So I went up the flew up there, and um, Bladen said, nothing here, Cresswell, bring everything, a whole lot, everything. I said, oh, God. So I flew back to Perth, told the uh, ASC Western area, he said, all right, we'll give you what we can, but I suggest you go to Adelaide. Why, sir? Well, there's nothing here you can buy, but I'll give you authority. Nick across to Adelaide, take a good NCO and four or five airmen and buy what you want. So 63,000 pounds later, we bought everything we wanted. In those days, you had uh, all sorts of funny forms that you just handed over to the supplier and uh, you signed them, and he claimed on the government. We bought everything. You can well imagine. Tables, chairs, bedding, palliasses, straw, kitchen equipment, digging equipment for the trenches, tents, everything we could think of. We even bought a bit of transport, and I found out later we also bought a tonne of cordial beer, <laughs> which was not on the list. But um, we arrived at Darwin. took 13 days to move my squadron, 120 blokes by rail, many changes of rail to Burdham, up to Outer Springs, then into trucks. There's no road between Outer Springs and Darwin those days, just a bulldust track. So up they went. We arrived 13 days later. I took out 26 aircraft, two or three sort of half-pranged on the way up. That'll be repaired later on. Got to Darwin. There, Bladen said, glad you're here, Creswell. You're taking over for your old people you knew, the 49th Fighter Group. I said, oh, am I? I said, they're leaving about a fortnight's time. You're taking over. I said, I'm taking over three squadrons. So we did. And uh, Dad said, uh, Dad Bladen said, by the way, I've got a, a funny sort of cipher signal from the CAS, Blake called Jones. Why did I take 13 days to get my squad to Darwin? I said, no, oh, it's true. He should know. He's flown around the country quite often. He said, how are you going to answer it, Cresswell? I said, well, with respect, sir, 
So you have to have a look at a map of Australia. And he did. And the Jones and I never spoke ever since. <laughs> Here Dick talks about Japanese attacks at night and how he downed two bombers and then the move to Milne Bay. I was on a strip, road strips. They built road strips um, beside the main road uh, up to Darwin. And the, again, the Japanese never came in to raid us. We had five months there with no daylight raid. That annoyed my blokes because they were pretty well trained by then, especially some of the guys who hadn't squadron. But they came in at night. So the fighter sector, just been formed, said, you got any people that can fly at night? I said, only me. I've got about 300, 400 hours of night flying. He said, well, you better take off and uh, have a crack at these Japs at night. I said, OK. So one night in November, the Japs sent in uh, six flights of three aircraft. They're Betty bombers, twin-engine bombers, and uh, they came in from all different directions. And I'd been um, patrolling east of the Darwin area, and I ducked in to try and get hold of the bomb and the searchlight. Missed him completely. Came back to the patrol line, and right in front of me were three Betty bombers in beautiful formation. So I fired my guns and lost and one went down. And uh, later on, the Japanese, oh, about 10 or 12 years ago, confirmed that I sort the second one down, because on his way back to Dili, where they were based, one pranked into the sea. So that was, wasn't, wasn't bad. We heard the Spitfires were coming in, so we were transferred to Milne Bay. Arrived there roughly in um, early February '43. Again, not many Japanese raids, except there was one big one in April. About 120, 130 aircraft came in. The last big raid by the Japs on New Guinea. Uh, my squadron shot down about five or six, I think. Quite a few damage. 75 squadron was there at Bill Bay then. Shot down three or four. Anyway, it was a good uh, victory for the Australian squadron. I got shot down myself, but that was incidental. One tiny little bullet fired by a zero, armor-piercing bullet, hit one of my magnetos on the, in the kidney hook on the Allison engine. So I landed, landed eventually, safely. But after Milne Bay, we were set up to good enough, good enough island. It's an island north of New Guinea, north of Milne Bay. It's a bit like Australia. It has kangaroos and wallabies and all sorts of Australian animals and birds on this island. Very unusual, but it's a lovely island to fly from. Beautiful weather. Uh, from there, we stayed about three or four months doing um, barge sweeps and uh, coastal sweeps up and down the New Britain coast. That's the big island north of uh, New Guinea, up to Farge Rabaul. Occasionally... Um, we saw a lot of enemy, not in the air, on the ground, and we flew back. One time we came back from near Rebel, and the guys couldn't believe it. There's 16 of us, uh, 16, at least 16 pilots in the aircraft. We saw 14 water spouts, and we couldn't believe it. There was a big black mass, about two or 3,000 feet above the uh, sea level, and these water spouts, they were terrific. We avoided those like the plague. One black wanted to say, can we shoot them down? I said, you can't shoot a bloody water spout down. He said, can I try? I said, okay. So he did. He fired 6.5s into the water spout. Nothing happened. So to see these water spouts is bloody amazing. Anyway, uh, from good enough, after a while, um, decided I should, I should come south. It's about September 43. And I had recommended one of my flight commanders, a bloke called Daryl Sproul, who had been with 21 Squadron in Malaysia, who was shot down in flames in a Bruce and Buffalo. He's one of the guys that escaped through Singapore to be an original member of my squadron. I recommend him for the CEO of the squadron. And their board agreed. So the day he was taking over from me, he, we decided to um, uh, do a sweep up the southern coast of New Britain towards Rebel. I led six, wing commander Arthur, who was a newly made wing leader of the new wing, base at Gunda, 
at six and uh, Dale spelled at six. Unfortunately, Dale got shot down right quite early in the sweep up to uh, New Britain. We were ten minutes apart, by the way, and uh, later on he was beheaded by the Japanese. So there was no new CO. So I stayed there for a while. A bloke called Buster Brown came up and took over. So back to Australia, to Mildura as chief flight instructor. Chief instructor was a bloke called Corville, who I think I knew. <laughs> anyway, I never saw Corville. He and I disagreed about many things. But I was in charge of all flying and all training. So Corville kept away from that, would you? Nice bloke, but individualist. So f- I had about three or four months at Mildura as chief flight instructor. Rewrote the syllabus of training because Mildura was full of ex-desert instructors, which we reckon had sand in their shoes. And we were fighting a war in New Guinea, not, not the desert. After about three or four months, suddenly got a posting to Darwin, which I couldn't believe. Oh, you're going to be wing leader of the Spitfire Week. And three squadrons, 452, 457, and RF Squadron 54 Squadron, flying Spitfires, five Cs. So I stayed there for quite a while. Then I found the accident rate was very high, because some of the guys, all, even our guys, had come from UK, but landing on Spitfires on grass fields and doing a three-point beautiful landing. But you couldn't do it in Darwin on these bloody road strips. Uh, with gusty winds and so on. So we cut down the, uh, the accident rate from about 90% down to about 10% by the guys' power approach and power landing their aircraft on these side strips. That was accepted by many. Those that didn't, didn't accept it were posted south pretty rapidly. After, and again, no enemy aircraft came into Darwin whilst I was there. I stripped two Kitty Hawks down to the bare skins, took out two of the six guns, took all the paint off them, took out half the uh, armour armor plate, and we tried to get these uh, diners at height. But the old Kitty Hawk was only good about, wasn't very good above 25,000 feet. Anyway, from Darwin, I suddenly got a new posting to form 81 Wing, a brand new Kitty Hawk Wing, to be formed eventually in Darwin on the 10th of May, 44. Anyway, I was posted to Townsville to command this, this new wing. The wing had three new squadrons, 82, 84, 86. 84 was eventually transferred to Horn Island, 86 to Meraki, airport in South Guinea, a terrible airport. What happened then? Oh, we stayed there for about four months. I had a total wing strength of men of 8,600 people, which was a bloody great big number of people. Several units, part of the three squadrons, had two RSUs, that's a repair and salvage unit, and uh, medical sections, all sorts of other units, ground units including a fighter sector. In the end, the eggs wouldn't give us sufficient boats or ships to get our units north. So I took 82 squadron, plus an RSU, plus some headquarters staff, to a place called Numfa in uh, West New Guinea. Nice and liner. We'd take over from the Japs about a year before. There, um, we flew a lot of operational hours in ground attack work between Numfa and uh, Maratai in uh, Dutch New Guinea. We had to fly via a place called Middleburg, an island off the north coast of New Guinea, northwest coast of New Guinea, which the Yanks had, where we could refuel and carry on to to do our um, our operational strikes. I know in 28 days over the Christmas period of 44, I had uh, my three squadrons flying flat out. We were dive-bombing ships and all sorts of bloody enemy territory. Anyway, that was quite an exciting period. We were flying... um, about 28 operational hours a week per pilot, per aircraft. That was pretty high in those days. We survived all that. I lost a few people. Dick now shares a very funny story about oysters and, and explains that the meteor was the wrong plane in Korea. Around about March 
45, getting towards the end of the war, someone dreamt up an operation called Obo, which was going into Borneo and the places there. I thought it was a bloody silly idea. I decided to come south, a bit tired. So I came south, spent some time playing around on Sydney Harbour, and they posted me to a staff cottage at Mount Martha in, in uh, Victoria. Short course, three months course. I did that course, I think it was the last, the worst on the course anyway, because the war finished right in the middle of it. So whilst there, I flew all the aircraft I could hold of, like a Beaufort, Beaufighter, Lib, Dakota, and uh, the Beaufort I thought was a very good aircraft because Sherg was then Air Vice Marshal, and his AMP, Airmail for Personnel. He knew, he knew I liked oysters. I knew he liked oysters. He said, OK, Crystal, don't tell you one, but pick up to Williamtown, pick up some bags of oysters. I said, OK. So he stuck racks in the uh, Bombay of the Beaufort. And I just got there once a week. And we used to buy a hundred dozen oysters, a beautiful oysters, no, first grade or second grade, for five pounds a bag. So I fly the Beaufort back to Laverton. We met by a bloke called Jill Cutting, some of you might know. He said, uh, here's a truck for take your oysters up to you. Melbourne. That's a bag for me. I said, yeah, it's a bag for you. So up to Melbourne we went, pushed the oysters out to the various blokes around the traps in bags of two dozen to five dozen. And of course, for sugar, no cost at all. And we used to charge the guys, I think it's two shoes a bag, 20 cents a bag for two dozen oysters. Times have changed. Anyway, um, from uh, Melbourne, they uh, transferred me to, uh, oh, back to Williamtown. I was there in charge of uh, the OTU Williamtown, Operational Trading Unit, and later on took over the base and took over a new wing, 78 wing, or an old wing actually, but 78 wing, had two squadrons there, a flying Mustang, and took over training of fighter parts, going to Japan as occupational force pilots. Quite a few nice blokes there too, they were flying Mustangs. Anyway, I had three years there, and eventually I was posted in 48 to uh, Amberley to be Temporary OC, officer commanding the, the base, re- replacing a bloke called um, Group Captain Eric Douglas. Now, he was a famous Air Force bloke, came back in history. He uh, flew a light aircraft in 1928 in the Antarctic. Now, I think it was a, I think it was a gypsy moth on floats. He was a marvellous engineer and a very good pilot. But he was retiring, and um, so I took over. And I couldn't believe that the pride of the, all the ground crew at Ambly, the 600 of them, and his farewell parties. Oh, they thought the world of him. Anyway, I stayed at Ambley for a little while until a new, a new group captain came up, black called Jim Alexander. I was transferred to a staff college, brand new staff college being formed at Point Cook as DS Plans. What the hell that was, I would never clue. <laughs> but I got there, I spent 19 months there, no flying, as DS Plans, and all I did was sort of plan the opening or reopening of a new staff college and travelling around the country visiting senior organisations like BHP and so on, so I could take the students up there later on to see these organisations. That was quite interesting. I got very tired of that. And eventually the AOC at the um, southern area said, you're fed up. I said, yeah, I sure am. OK, you're now CEO of, of 21 Squadron and Laverton. I said, oh, good. Lots of pilots from World War II and new pilots. That was a good squadron. Wasn't there very long, and um, I got a call from a, on the phone from a bloke called Bladen, he was then AML for personnel. He said, your, your, your mate's died. I said, oh, who's that? He said, Spence. He was CEO of a 77 squadron in Korea. He was killed anyway. So that was on Saturday. On Monday, I was on my way to Japan. So I took over the squadron, then base in Ibukuni, and a bloke called Bay Adams was the senior part there, and a hell of a nice bloke, marvellous bloke. He said, your squadron? I said, OK. So he took me on, a, on about 11 missions in the first two or three days. 
He said, okay, it's your squadron. It really is your squadron now. I said, thanks very much. We're in Mustangs. We flew dozens of missions a day. We're all tired, fed up, because Stratemeyer, the four-star general in Tokyo, had said, uh, look, Creswell, you're a good squadron. You're probably the best we've got. We want to give you savers, but we haven't got many ourselves. But the old ones are wearing out. Now, I'll give you up to four a month just so you can practice on the saber. That takes op- operations. I said, oh, I love that, sir. Thanks very much. But unfortunately, an Air Vice Marshal, RAF, in Tokyo had heard about this, told his masters in UK, next thing I knew I was getting meteors. That's another story. Now, the meteor wasn't an aircraft, any operations in Korea. It was built and designed as an anti-bomber aircraft in Europe. That's what it was. Nice aircraft flyers, a general's aircraft to fly, but useless. And it had nothing in common with American system. The only thing in common was the fuel. The guns, nothing was in common with the two aircraft, the two uh, systems. Anyway, we got the squadron back to um, Iwakuni, and over three months we transferred the squadron to uh, the meter aircraft. But uh, we had four excellent bloody RAF instructors. They were marvellous, especially a bloke called Max Scammell. But um, it wasn't the aircraft for us. I tried to tell our Air Force that this was the wrong aircraft. Naturally, being a squadron bit up there, down here, all the way, powerful blacks, they wouldn't listen. Anyway, we... Uh, did our best with the, with the meteor. He shares now great praise from the United States Air Force and lords the ground crew. And then he meets with the Minister for Aviation and tells him actually how it is. He also compares the Sabre versus the MiG. The squad has a, is well known by the American Air Force. They thought it's one of the best squadrons they ever had. At that time, the, the Royal Australian Navy, a fleet of arm, came up the Sydney. Guy here that wasn't that first trip, and they flew off the west, co- west coast of, um, of Korea in shocking weather. In fact, one, one period, they struck a very severe storm, and they nearly wrecked the bloody ship, but the aircraft on it. They survived. Every now and again, the odd naval pilot came across from the uh, carrier to see us at um, Kimpo, which is the airfield we were operating from at, um, in Korea. Also in Korea, I was to do, we were transferred from Japan to west east coast, then up to Pohang in northern Korea. Only three weeks there. It was bloody cold as buggery. Minus 27 degrees centigrade. And every time the airman put his hand on the side of a fuselage, it came away with no skin. It was a pretty severe conditions in the North Korea. But the airman, again, did a marvellous job. Take my hat off to the ground crew in, in a squad or in operations. They do a most amazing job. Anyway, that's before we came back to Japan to check on the meteors. It was then that um, the Yang said... We'll give you 25 missions on the Sabre, American Sabre. I said, will you? Yeah. All, all paid for by our, our government. I said, thanks very much. So why I went, did a full Sabre conversion course, having previously done a jet course on uh, their T-33 and the F-80, and 10 missions on the F-80s, as uh, their guess. Anyway, the Sabre, they did 10 missions on Sabres, because the Australian government said, uh, oh, if you prang an aircraft, Creswell, we're not going to pay for it. The Yanks said, OK, reduce from 25 to 10 missions. I got a damaged MiG, but oh, they were frightening days. Even with the Sabre, which is underpowered, and we're flying at 30,000 feet, the MiGs were at 55,000 feet. And we used to see them coming in. That was, that was pretty frightening for all of us. But the ratio of kills by the Sabres against the MiGs was eight MiGs to one Sabre, which is pretty good in anyone's language. Here Dick talks about the Hawk of Fury and his time with HMAS Sydney. He also explains how he helped create a fighter combat instructor course way back 
1954. After um, career, I came back to um, staff job at Air Force headquarters and um, I was told to fly around Australia by the CIS to just say hello to the guys and the various fighter squadrons and give, give them an idea what was going on um, in the career. On the way back from Ambley, going back to Melbourne, I was flying a Mustang, I was caught out of the air by then the uh, Minister for Air, so I landed at Fairburn, went to see him. Any complaints, Chris? Well, I said, well, yeah, several. So first thing I said, any commander in Korea must be a wing commander or a British squadron leader. He said, OK. And a few other things. I said, all pilots had to be officers. Why? Well, in case they're captured, an officer gets some credit from the enemy when it's here, wouldn't it? In fact, I had made all my aircrew officers anyway in the field. I made them all flying officers, much to the consternation of the airport. But at least they were safe in case they were shot down. And anything else? Oh, and a few other things, sir. He said, oh, OK. Remember all those. I've copied them, copied them down, and I'll tell the chief of the Air Force to change his uh, policies a bit. That was good, except I hadn't told the chief of the Air Force. <laughs> I arrived back for the annual uh, so-called Christmas party at um, the officer's mess in Melbourne, and the CO said, you haven't reported to me yet, sir. Well, you sent me on this trip around Australia. I said, sure, but you shouldn't have told the, the Air Member for... For, for the member for aviation, what, go, what went on? I said, I'm sorry about that, but I was called out of the bloody air, had a land, go in to see him and, and tell him a few things. He said, OK. That was Jones too. So from that point in my life, I uh, had a good job. I was fighter ops, the operational directorate. Flew everywhere, flew everything. Firstly, um, sort of wanted to get, get, get back to Williamtown. They said, all right. There are a couple of naval parts. One, one well known to remember here, like Seed and uh, Gould, dare me to go to the deck. And the, the, the CIS said, uh, You can't, Creswell, you're, you're an Air Force bloke. You can't go to the, join the Navy for free and easy on a, on a deck of a carrier. That's where I'm going. He said, OK, well, you, you take three weeks' leave. So the CNS of the Navy said, uh, Well, it's a bit difficult because you're not a bloody naval pilot. But he agreed. So after 100 adults at uh, Nara, I went to the deck on the old HMS Sydney in a Fury, a beautiful aircraft, one of the best aircraft I've ever flown, the Hawker Fury, a lovely aircraft. Two deck landings successfully. That night, of course, the, uh, the mess at Nara really looked after me. Oh, boy. So after being on the staff, the staff job at Air Force headquarters, back to um, Williamtown, I was CEO of the Operation Conversion Unit, which trained pilots. I formed a thing called the Saber Trials Flight, because the Australian Sabre was being introduced into the Australian Air Force, and we didn't have any um, much knowledge of the Australian Sabre, although I've been involved in the design of it. I also formed a thing called an FCI, Fighter Combat Instructors Course. This was caused by our Air Force was a bit outdated in relation to training of uh, fighter pilots. The instrument, instrument people went to UK to be instructors. The armoured training was done at sail or in UK, and generally the Air Force system wasn't working very well. So a bloke called Des Murphy, an American who was on my staff, the first American to be seconded to the Australian Air Force, we talked about it and talked about it and said, let's form a new system. So we got Airborne to agree to all instrument rating examiners could be trained by a CFS, Central Flying School, but we'd have our own. And they would go back to CFS once a year for updating. But they belonged to us. The same with armoured training. They'd be trained by anywhere at all, but they, 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 the members of our squadrons. And they go back to uh, CFS for re-evaluation. 
So the same, this fighter combat instructors course, which I introduced in '54, was adopted by the Americans, and it still exists in America, and it still exists in Australia. This, this particular course, because it made sense. Anyway, I stayed three years in um, Williamtown. I was also oversee the base on, on, on occasion. This was due to the introduction of the Australian-built Sabre to the RWF. A bloody good aircraft, by the way. A bit underpowered, but still a good aircraft. And eventually, the Air Force posted me down to Melbourne again as the last job was Director of Air Staff Policy. I stayed there about a year. It was the top group kept job in the Air Force. But I stayed there for about a year and um, I Then my life became rather interesting. I wanted to be very active. So I went to New Guinea on salvage work, salvaging all sorts of Allied and enemy aircraft. We had a great big diesel-fired bin. We threw all the aluminium bits and pieces of aircraft into it, and out came some very nice alloy ingots, which we sold to um, Amsterdam, England, America, and Singapore. The engines had a lot of copper in them, copper wire, and we sold the copper to various companies. That didn't last very long. I had a beaver up there, flew, flew that for a while. But then um, I was back in the, having a break at, on, the, on the sands at the Gold Coast. I met a black called Bobby Gibbs, if I knew. He said, I want a part, be his chief part of my organisation called Gibbs Civic Airways. I said, OK. So I joined him for about 40 months. He had JE-52s, the very marvellous German transport built in 1933. Uh, they were a good, air, good transport. They carried about 9,000 pounds of freight where our Dakotas carried about up to six. So I flew the JE-52s and the Norseman aircraft he had for some time. I got a bad case of hepatitis, so I came back to um, Australia. Dick finally shares his thoughts about Antarctica. Someone down at the Havilland Aircraft Company at Bankstown said, you want to go to the Antarctic? I said, no, but what's on? Well, we want a part to go down to the Antarctic and fly beavers down there on the summer cruise. I said, what's that? He said, oh, December to March. It's summertime down there. And you fly down there. So I did that twice. That's where I met an old guy we have here, a guy called Graham Dyke. I met him in the so-called hangar at Mawson. It's from the, our base at the, at the Antarctic. But that was very interesting. The Antarctic is a, really a beautiful country. There's no green down there. There's no plants, no flowers, nothing like that. It's just a beautiful-looking country. It's full of ice. I remember once um, going down the Danish ships we hired from before we built ownership some years later, and one day we were going amongst a lot of icebergs. Still, still water, cold. And the Danish captain said, I was on deck with him, bridge, I'll stop engines for a while. And we drifted into amongst the icebergs and he pressed the hooter. And the thousands and thousands of petrol birds took off from the top, of the top of the iceberg. Thousands of them. The white petrol, about big as a sparrow. And thousands of them. It's so it just dark at the sky. You couldn't believe it. These petrels are one of the many birds down there, darling. This bird is a skewer. It eats everything. In fact, if it overeats, the scourges the, the food it can't take and uh, throws it out so it can take off. But um, they had, I had two trips down there, Perth on the Danish ships. I flew a beaver on floats. The second time I went down there was in 1960, Christmas time, 1960. The vision, Antarctic Division of the Department of Civil Affairs, had lost two beavers and a Dakota in a wild storm in, uh, just up from Orson. So I had to hand over my aircraft to them. <laughs> On the way back to Australia, somehow the ship had dumped all the food, including its own food, at another base down there. And we suddenly found we were a bit short of food on the ship. So we ate caviar and dry biscuits all the way back to Macquarie Island. 
had a lot of we had lots of liquor there, good brandy, and good whiskey on board. So we survived all that. And then um, our back for those trips still belonged to the Hamlet Aircraft Company at Baxter, and flew twin engine Beechcraft all around Australia, delivering spare parts and people to various operations owned by Australian Blue Metals. They were building strips and so on. Then Hawker City Group in the UK said, we want a bloke in Canberra. The Hamilton Company in Sydney said, well, you better go down Crystal. You know the, some of the blokes in Canberra, I said, yeah. So I stayed there for about 12, 13 years. In the end, representing Hawker City Group, which was a pretty famous group in those days, big group. Every two years, they called me back to Europe or the UK to fly their aircraft. So I was the first to fly um, quite a few aircraft that the Air Force had later on. Apart from Beechcraft, I flew a lot of those. I flew the um, Harrier, Hawker Harrier. That was quite an aircraft. You sit there just by yourself, and nothing's happening. But you're airborne, you're quite safe. A bit frightening for a while. I did a few flights over there, the Harrier. Flew the F-78, 748, which we later bought out here, 12 of them. I flew a Nat, built by Follins. It was a small fighter aircraft. Later on, the Indians built it. But the, 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 the uh, Hawkins Ready Group and the RAF trying to get me to convince the Australians to buy it. I said, not very likely. And I flew the Caribou in the Canada. That was quite an aircraft. And for a fighter pilot who's pretty sensitive on the stick when he controls the aircraft to fly a Caribou, and you really got to work, work, work it around. But had a good instructor there. That's quite a nice aircraft. Then, because we owned uh, Beechcraft, or we represented, represented Beechcraft in Australia, this is a hooker, this is a, the heaven, I had to go down to visit all the Beechcraft factories. They had lots of nice aircraft. So I flew most of those. So I came back to Australia, sat in my bum at, uh, in Canberra, and always had an aircraft based in Canberra, so I could fly anywhere I wanted to go, or journey up to meetings at the, the Hamlet in, in Sydney. And that's roughly my flying life. It wasn't a bad sort of life, but it was fun. Dick Creswell's skill, courage, and decisive leadership distinguished him as one of Australia's great combat pilots and leaders in two wars. He was the first Australian airman to shoot down an enemy aircraft in night combat over Australia. The first Australian to go faster than the speed of sound and the first RAAF commander to lead jet aircraft into battle. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. 
If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.